The race to connect the world to the internet is gathering pace, and especially to connect the estimated three and a half billion people who lack reliable, high-quality connectivity. And lift off of Falcon 9. Go Blue Walker 3, go Starlink. Mega constellations of low-orbit satellites beginning to envelop more of the Earth's surface in connectivity are attracting much of the attention, as the technology has come dramatically down in cost and improved in performance in recent years. But mobile internet is spreading to more parts of the world too. And over the next year, several enormous continent-spanning high-bandwidth undersea internet cables are making landfall and coming online across Africa and Asia, promising to profoundly increase speeds, reduce costs, and in turn boost local economies. Internet infrastructure is proving to be big business. But are these efforts enough to ensure universal and affordable access to all? Welcome to New Foundations. In this episode, we'll be looking at what it will take to provide universal and affordable internet access and what it will mean to achieve it. This podcast is supported by Pictay Wealth Management and we thank them for their support. Many parts of the world still lack internet access and many, many more are excluded from services that are reliable, fast and cheap. It's estimated that 40% of the world's population isn't using the internet. The figure is higher still among low- and middle-income countries where nearly half are digitally excluded. 50% of Africa's population, for instance, just over 500 million people, have access to mobile internet coverage but do not use it, illustrating that this is not just a coverage gap but a critical usage gap as well. But why is this so important? I think there's a number of benefits in a range of different areas that come in that shape of why it's important to connect as much of the world as we can to the internet. This is Teddy Woodhouse, Senior Research Manager at the Alliance for Affordable Internet. When we look at what have people who have been offline or who have been marginally connected say is the biggest barrier for them, most frequently it's cost. So in terms of thinking about where is the problem the worst, we focus on addressing that problem with the ambition of getting as many people online as possible. But I think cost is one of those barriers by which we see the internet becoming a technology, not necessarily for good always, as we hope it will, but in some ways it starts to replicate the inequalities that already exist in the so-called offline world. Um, and so those who have access to financial wealth are able to further benefit themselves by having access to this technology. And those who are marginalized, those on lower incomes, um, those living in poverty, don't have the same access to this technology and therefore get further penalized in terms of participation in education or in economic opportunities as well. Despite widespread recognition that universal and affordable internet access is important for a whole host of economic and social reasons, we have been slow to achieve it. Peter Misek is General Counsel and UN Policy Manager at Access Now, a global digital rights organisation. We're at a place where far too many people lack basic access to the internet. It's still in the billions. And uh, this is actually increasing inequality um, and not just economic inequality between you know the states that have and the states that don't but uh, gender inequality uh, is actually increasing in many ways due to the introduction of new technologies in patriarchal societies 
um, uh, which you know characterize probably most of the countries in the world. Um, men are afforded greater opportunities and access to these tools. Uh, more of the you know, applications and services are, are designed towards them, and they benefit uh, in ways that leave uh, many women and girls um, behind. And uh, so, there hasn't been enough investment, probably um, at the at the global level, in laying out you know, the, the necessary infrastructure for uh, universal access to the internet. And that is um, an issue that you know, we've taken to the World Bank and the IMF. Uh, there have been, I think, uh, too much reliance on the private sector to uh, extend the ubiquity of new technologies. Um, I think a lot of people were really excited and, and surprised to see the explosion of mobile internet throughout Africa, but um, that is not a substitute for you know fiber to the home for uh, broadband connections that allow you to you know robustly engage online, not just um, maybe send mobile money and and use some messaging apps. And so uh, we do need to see more investment, but we also need to see reforms at the policy level. Much internet infrastructure is developed by the private sector and at great expense. But for private companies, there can be little incentive to connect a remote few at the periphery of the network, and more rewards for their investments in highly populated areas. So what could be done to incentivize these companies to broaden access? Lourdes Montenegro leads digital sector transformation at the World Benchmarking Alliance. The World Benchmarking Alliance is a global initiative. Uh, we operate as a nonprofit, And our mission is really to encourage or incentivize the world's most influential corporations to contribute to our sustainable development. And through our multi-stakeholder consultations, we understood that for the digital technology companies, their contribution to sustainability and sustainable development has to be something close to their core um, business, which is the provision of technology. And what that means is that the, the responsibility, the sustainability responsibility of these companies has to do with digital inclusion. When you think about the key players in combating digital exclusion, then, is it down largely to private companies? Are they the biggest actors with the greatest ability to address digital exclusion? Yeah, so they definitely are. Largely because even at the most basic level of infrastructure, Government does a lot, but a lot of our connectivity infrastructure, a lot of the development of technology, not at the applied level, not at the basic level, is funded by the private sector and is, is, is basically uh, spearheaded by the, the private sector. So we put a lot of, I don't know, would you call it trust? Did we put a lot of trust in the problem? But it is in private hands. And so we need the private sector to step up to their responsibility to be held accountable for how they are ensuring that the future we are creating for humanity is one where no one is left behind. So it's really what we can see now is massive digitization everywhere. Uh, digital transformation across all different industries, spearheaded by the digital sector, of course. But that's not necessarily a good thing. 
we need to ensure that that digital transformation process is inclusive, benefits all, and is trustworthy, that it protects us from the risks and harms. How do public and private sector actors collaborate on this and how are incentives aligned? What are the roles that each play in providing connectivity and ensuring that it is affordable? Teddy Woodhouse again. Part of the complexity in this work is that there's no consistent way in which these relationships work necessarily. And so in that sense, um, I, I guess a good way to start is to describe where an ideal situation, as we would see it, would look like. And in so many ways, what it would roughly translate into is we would see a public sector that has a few functions. Some of the key functions there are effectively regulating the market uh, so that you see competition, that consumers are able to choose and easily transition between uh, different service providers. And many high-income countries have this feature. Um, and you're starting to see a growing trend of market competition throughout the world, which is a really positive trend in this area. Um, but you would also see, I think, recognition from the public sector more consistently of there will be places throughout the world where a free market approach isn't going to work. Crucial areas that I think you can use as an example are rural and remote areas where the cost to build infrastructure is so high in comparison to what the return on investment likely would look like that that model that has been used to drive so much of internet access to date isn't going to get us to universal access. And so you see public sector actors stepping in, recognizing that role and doing something about it. What I hope we might see is we see different business models coming in and playing a different role in different parts of the world. So for example, we have big multinational mobile network brands that are you know, globally or regionally known, but I would also hope to see more uh, community networks or municipal networks or cooperatives working at smaller and more regional scales as well. This podcast is supported by Pictay Wealth Management. Here's Christopher Silan, Senior Technology Analyst at Pictay, discussing the importance of widening connectivity. Connectivity overall continues to be a fundamental driver of growth on the internet. But perhaps, somewhat unintuitively, human connectivity no longer plays the role it once did. Instead, it's likely that machines will drive connectivity. Case in point, internet users are expected to grow 6% in the coming few years, but devices by 10%. And within devices, smartphone growth will trail the growth expected in machine-to-machine connections. And by 2023, recent studies suggest that there will be almost five times as many connected devices as there are smartphones. Adding billions of new connected devices will dramatically change most aspects of our lives. Whether it is in sports, with a cornucopia of sport watches, sensors, devices and other gadgets, or in households with security devices, light bulbs or connected heating systems, or even in cars with a myriad of connected driving aids, there is no doubt that both the depth and breadth of consumer-connected devices will continue to grow robustly. At its root, 
This connectivity-driven trend drives economic reallocation, but maybe also without adding new incremental economic opportunity on top. Instead, what we're so far witnessing is a massive shift in market share and probably fewer increases in market growth. In layman terms, that looks like economic efficiency more than it does economic growth. That was Christopher Silan of Pictet Wealth Management. In the year ahead, enormous undersea fibre optic cables encircling Africa and extending across Asia are scheduled for completion and will come online, bankrolled by the fortunes of big tech. They include Two Africa, the longest subsea cable ever deployed, connecting Europe, Africa and Asia. They're enormously expensive projects. Their sponsors say they will widen access, boost internet speeds by up to six times, cut costs and in turn boost economies, bringing growth and jobs. But others are fearful of the role big tech companies play in shaping the infrastructure of the web, infrastructure that is ultimately a public utility. Here is Peter Mysek again. These cables are very expensive. There's, there's no getting around that. Uh, in the past, there were huge consortiums that would come together uh, to fund the development of these massive undersea cables. Uh, that most of our internet routing rely on. These days, you know, yeah, we're seeing more and more of these big, you know, big name private companies that, that we've heard of, you know, laying their own cables and uh, putting their stamp on them. But this is public infrastructure. First of all, it's laying uh, over, you know, public international waters. Uh, it's impacting um, the undersea environments. It's uh, relying on landing points, you know, that, that traverse public beaches and public uh, bays and, and waterways. And uh, we need to see this global cable infrastructure as actually critical infrastructure for civic action and uh, the realization of human rights. In that sense, you know, we need to treat this more like the public utility it is and force these you know, huge uh, consortiums and conglomerates uh, to extend access even where it's not, you know, in their primary profit motive. And um, sometimes these cables are laid across oceans and uh, travel pretty close to these small uh, island nations, but don't bother to connect with them. Again, it's, it's you know, not necessarily going to be uh, recouping their profits um, to, to connect to these small island nations, but it's such a minimal um, amount of work for the, for the huge benefit that you get towards integrating um, these places into the, the digital economy and you know, providing their citizens with, with crucial access that they, that they don't have or they currently rely on really slow and expensive satellite connections to achieve. Teddy Woodhouse again. By owning that cable, you can ensure that your content maybe not necessarily gets preferential treatment, but is getting good treatment in terms of operates and flows freely across that cable. And I think why is it so crucial right now is a lot of those brands are recognizing that where growth in this sector is going to come from is from areas that are currently underconnected and underserved. And being the first one there tends to give you a privileged position. And so where I then think you can then think about, okay, so how should governments respond to this and what should be the role of policy and regulation is making sure that that privileged position doesn't become an entrenched privilege. 
Um, and so in the sense of we want to make sure that you have network neutrality and that is kind of a public policy intervention that is crucial to ensuring that that standard is upheld. But also I think why it's quite favorable to allow these to continue to build in is when you have more cables coming in, it generally increases the available bandwidth in a market. And so more users are able to do more things in the network, which generally makes the technology a bit more robust, a bit more reliable, and increases the capabilities of this infrastructure. So it's not that you want to stop this investment from happening, but ensuring that through regulation that these investments are leading us towards positive outcomes where people are able to do what they want to do online. Boosting internet infrastructure, making it reach everyone and do so affordably, will take a range of solutions. There are a little over 5 million cell towers in the world. 2G signals touch over 99% of the living population. This is Isfandria Shaheen, founder of Net Equity, a startup which partners with other tech companies to extend internet access by wrapping optical fibre cable around existing power lines. The challenge is that in these, of these 5 million cell towers, um, only 10 to 15% are fibre connected. And these are the cell towers that are in your urban centres. But over 90% of them, and this is the average, like, you know, it'll be slightly lower in Africa, slightly higher in the US, but over 90% of them are connected to the electrical grid. And so our theory was if we can just retrofit existing infrastructure with fibre, and make it available under a public-private partnership type structure, then, you know, we can have cost-based pricing, which can flood the world with bandwidth, and that will help the world come online. So our role in this whole relationship has been to stitch deals together. So what does that mean, stitch deals together? Because this is a deal with the government to say, hey, um, you have this electrical infrastructure uh, that is um, uh, widely available, that is 10 to 15 times more pervasive than fiber. We want to uh, retrofit fiber on this infrastructure. This is a proven technique. This has been done before. Helical wrap is not going to mess up the electrical grid. These techniques have been applied on ultra high voltage transmission. We think it can be applied on medium voltage transmission, which for us is anything above 11 kilovolts and less than 66 kilovolts. And we think that if we just follow the electrical grid to deploy fiber on this medium voltage grid, we will be able to fiberize pretty much all the cell towers in the world. And we will be able to do the deployment very quickly and very cheaply. So what Net Equity does is it tries to bring a deal together with a lot of stakeholders. So stakeholders include the utility, the government, the mobile network operators, and the financiers. And so, you know, and it's about like trying to solve, it's like a constrained optimization problem sort of, because you say that, okay, everybody's got a certain need, right? Like the people in government, they want to win the next election. Uh, the people who are giving money, they want to earn a certain return. Uh, the people who, um, you know, are giving debt, they need a certain amount of security. Uh, the mobile network operators, they have a certain uh, preference for what they are willing to pay for backhaul price. And so all of these are uh, constraints. And the thing that net equity tries to do is bring a lot of these constraints together and then basically go and pitch the deal. Uh, to a government or to uh, sometimes a utility, sometimes a multilateral even. 
that is what that that is what i would say i spent most of 2019 doing so you know specifically it meant going to south africa have talking to people who operate escom and figuring out if there's a deal possible they are going to pakistan uh, talking to people who uh, you know are uh, stakeholders of uh, lahore electric supply company seeing if we could do a deal over there there is no single solution to universal access it will take satellites mobile internet community networks and much besides but it will also take policy innovation teddy woodhouse i guess where i am optimistic about innovation and technological innovation playing a role in the market is less about choosing you know choosing which horse is going to win the race in the sense of you have to back you know submarine cables or satellites or mobile network towers in 5G it's more about exploring all of those options and recognizing that different options are actually going to be better in different circumstances than other options will be and so i think some of the areas that we're seeing innovation is actually being more efficient in using that and so we see as old technologies get phased out being honest with ourselves in the technical term is refarming but essentially transitioning from dedicating big chunks of those airwaves to old technologies and reallocating them more efficiently to new technologies which in turn creates kind of better user experiences and can help us connect more people um those are the kind of innovations that i'm most excited by is you know not necessarily choosing a specific one but using public policy to kind of gain benefit from multiple technologies and innovations throughout the whole sector. Today's internet is unevenly distributed and use lags access. How then should we think about progress? The question has stopped being about are you online or not because that question isn't as good as it used to be or as important as it used to be. It's now do you have meaningful connectivity or not and so meaningful connectivity comes through you know having speeds that are closer to a 4G network at least or having a smartphone device rather than just a basic touchpad device it comes from having an unlimited connection somewhere in your day-to-day life so that you're able to do more than just count down individual megabytes of data and feel like you're having to limit yourself online um and it comes with political and social rights as well um to feel like you can express yourself online. And so I have hope that we're going to see more progress in that area of people not just being online but being confidently online and being meaningfully connected so in a way that this technology is transforming their lives. That is it for this episode of New Foundations. If you liked what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again to Pictay Wealth Management for their support. You can find out more about the series as well as articles and further reading at newfoundations.economist.com.